beautiful worship from one who is younger, being thou my vision, and if young little Jake will take his skills and make the Lord his vision, what he'll do, and then one from old, at the end of his life, <laughs> same age as me, that's why I pick on him that way, but to have the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Lamb, I was just thinking, it was a year ago. Uh, the doctors were saying that he probably wouldn't be able to play guitar from an accident. And uh, we thank you. Uh, there is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, that directs us in our day. And the key is, you don't have the past that shapes you. You don't have the future that shapes you. As followers of God, we must have Christ as our vision that shapes us. I remember learning glimpses of this as a young boy uh, growing up in a pastor's home. Um, you inevitably hear as the only son, the older ladies coming up to you and saying, oh, you're so sweet. Aren't you going to follow your daddy's footstep? Aren't you going to be a preacher too and a pastor? And I'd smile, be polite. But in my mind, I'm thinking there's no way. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a preacher. I mean, it's bad enough to say I'm a pastor's son. Why? Because they automatically have a stereotype. I thought, why do I don't want to live with this the rest of my life? Uh, I don't want to be a pastor. Let me, can I have just like a normal job like my granddad and, and, uh, make money? I mean, that was kind of my thought and, uh, not have these images every, every time someone says that. And now I, <laughs> I see Evan doing the same thing. People are saying the same things. His own sister saying the same things. Like, yeah, no. Yeah. If he's going to follow the Lord, follow anybody, he's going to be following the Lord. But, I remember that a few years ago as I was uh, making some visits and I just began pastoring at a church and um, and I was going from visit to visit and I'd spent part of my day studying and, and I thought to myself as I was getting into the car, leaving the house that, you know, I really love this. I think I was made. I was born to pastor and I love pastoring and I, and I thought back as a, as a young child, my view of it then and how it's changed and how the Lord's done a work and and the difference was that somewhere along the way I had to give up my idea of how life ought to be and say Christ you be my vision wherever you lead whatever it be I'm just to make Christ my vision and uh you know it, it's it's brought me in some places that uh have not always been uh en- enjoyable but they have always been blessings and so I want to take you to Genesis chapter 43 because I think this is one of the lessons that God is teaching Jacob. God is teaching his sons. And God has already taught Joseph and and Joseph is becoming the tool of instruction uh, for the rest of his family. If you remember the whole story of the Bible after Genesis 3 on is the story of God providing a redeemer for mankind. And remember Genesis 1 to 3 is the setting God created the world and then the sin that enters into the world in Genesis 3 that God's going to provide a redeemer and from Genesis 3 all the way up to the gospels it is the predictions it is the the pointing to the redeemer and how God's going to save it from every sacrifice slaughtered 
uh, to the prophets, to the patriarchs, and then the gospels. It is the Redeemer himself, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is portrayed, given there. And from Acts all the way up, leading up to the book of Jude, Jude is the implications of the Redeemer. That there is a church now, that there are followers of Jesus Christ, and, and how we work together. And then the book of uh, Revelation, beginning even Jude and into Revelation, it is the fulfillment of mankind being redeemed. And so along the way, we get we get little snippets of of people, of of patriarchs and and mankind. We learn about mankind, but we also are learning about God. And I think that what you've got here in Genesis 43 is kind of a foreshadowing of things to come. Of this is a man that's working as a deliverer for a family, but it points even further still to the ultimate redeemer that will come through this line, this family line. And God is teaching Jacob, make him, make God the vision, not your idea of how life ought to be. Jacob has described his life uh, at the end. He says, my, my years have been hard and they have been few. The characteristic of Jacob is to struggle. He has in his life struggled with God. It's interesting in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the, the great hall of faith as it's going through the patriarchs of the old and describing the life. It has this one line about Jacob. Uh, it talks about the faith as he was dying, as he gave prophecies and, and blessings as children as he leaned upon his staff and he died. And I thought, wow, you know, that's kind of Hebrews, the, the hallmark of Jacob's life, the highlight was even at the end as he died. And I think, man, you know, Jacob really uh, had a hard time. In fact, God said, you know what? I'm going to change your name. Your name means supplanter. It means deceiver. I'm going to give you a new name, Israel. One who struggles with God and prevails. And so that has been the characteristic. Even now his name bears struggling and he has not stopped struggling. Now, if you remember, just it's been a few weeks. Get you caught up. Joseph, as a young boy, 17, favorite son of Jacob, the, the, the son of Rachel, the one he loves the most, um, is betrayed by his brothers as a compromise. They sell him <laughs> into slavery. That's a compromise. They really wanted to kill him. Uh, but they sell him instead, and he is traded off into Egypt uh, at the young age of 17, going into Potiphar's household, rises in, in employment there in service, so much so that he's kind of ahead over the household underneath Potiphar. And the, he attracts the attention of Potiphar's wife, who uh, tempts him day after day after day to leave the ways of God, but he does not. And in, because of this, she makes up vicious lies about him, accuses him of rape, and Potiphar believes these lies, ruins his reputation, sends him to prison, to dungeon. And we really don't know how long he's been in prison. We know at some point toward the end, he comes across two folks that he interprets dreams for. He tells them to give a good word to Pharaoh as he has Pharaoh's ear. They forget about him. And then at the age of 30, he is brought before Pharaoh because of the dreams that Pharaoh has. God uses Joseph to reveal these dreams Pharaoh recognizes this man for whom he is, as one whose God's hand is upon. So he sets him apart to be second in command in Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt, to be overseeing all that is to come. Uh, the, the income, the agricultural, the land itself. And so for seven years, as prophesied by God uh, through these dreams, 
there would be seven years of prosperity. Joseph uses that time to accumulate savings because he knows that after these seven years of prosperity will be seven years of famine. And now they are well into the famine. In fact, at this time in Genesis chapter 43, they are two years into that famine, putting Joseph at the age of 39. And uh, it is here uh, in this time he gets his encounter with the brothers, probably somewhere in that first year of the famine. He figures out who they are. They don't figure out who he is. He makes some accusation. You guys are spies. He wanted to find out more. Does his brother Benjamin still alive? Benjamin wasn't sent because, well, you know what? He's he's the baby. He is the he is the only remaining son of Rachel. Remember, Joseph was beloved. He's no more in Jacob's eyes. Rachel is no more. And the only one that's left is Benjamin. So he's got a watchful eye over Benjamin. Doesn't let him out of his sight. But Joseph wants to see Benjamin. He's had a dream that one day all the sons are going to bow down before him. And all the, the fathers are going to, uh, his father is going to bow down before him. It's not yet happened. So he sins and says, look, you want more food? You're not coming back until you bring your brother Benjamin. They don't yet know who Joseph is. That's where we find ourselves in Genesis 43. Now, when Jacob gets word that Benjamin is required, he lashes out. He says, and I'll just read this to you in the chapter before this, verse 36. He says, you bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you will take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And that is his view of life. All of life, all, all that God is doing is going against me, is going for my own evil. Then Reuben said to his father, well, kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put them in my hands and I will bring them back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother's dead and he is the only one left. Harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make. You will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now remember, Jacob, the brothers, Joseph, they all view God differently. Therefore, they view life differently. Um, Joseph has learned that, that God is in control and that he is actually working things toward good, the eternal good. And it shapes how he's living life, how he's forgiving and graceful. The brothers, they believe that God is in control and working out for their eternal punishment. And so everything that happens is, is a, a dig at trying to, to get punishment and correction in their life. And then Jacob's there and he's thinking, you know, well, God is in control. Yeah, sure. But he's in control for my eternal misery. All things work against me. And he has a fatalistic view of God. And so we'll see how these lens play out in chapter 43. And it will evolve and we'll see Jacob's reaction to the work of God. And so let's stand as we read chapter 43 together. Now the famine was severe in the land. When they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to him, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell that man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, 
Send the boy with me, and we will rise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. But I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. And the father of Israel said to him, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother. Rise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children... I am bereaved. So the man took this present and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The men did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money. We, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make a service and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with them at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we come down the first time to buy food. And when we come to the lodging place, we open our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our food in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the men had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, they had washed their feet. And when he given the donkey his fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old men of whom he spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant or father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. Controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the man looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. You may be seated. We learn right from the beginning. Jacob is saying. No way. No way. Is my son Benjamin. Going with you. Simeon has been in, and put in prison. Until they come back. A whole year passes. And he's saying no way. Let me just give you one important lesson right here. If you don't learn this, anything else, this is important right here. Learn this. Never say never. Never say never because God is listening. 
And God hears you say never. I remember once growing up, I had cousins that lived in Johnson County in a town called Middlesex. I always felt sorry for them. I thought, you guys live in Middlesex. Man, that must be bad, you know? You know where our first house was? Yep. Address Middlesex, North Carolina. I lived there for six years. And so, you know, I learned you don't ever say never to God. And so here Jacob is saying, I'm never going to send my son down to that man. You know, he keeps saying that man. I think he's doing it with derision and hate, that man. This one is requiring my son. No. Listen, we can identify with that. There is something that we love. There is someone perhaps that we love. There is maybe an occupation. Uh, there is something that we treasure. Remember those old stories where we ask ourselves, if your house was burning down, what would be that one thing that you would take from your house so it wouldn't be burned? You know, those treasures that we have for Joseph or for Jacob, it was Benjamin. And Benjamin represented his wife, Rachel. The one that he loved the most for. The one that he worked all those years for. And stepped outside of God's command. And multi, marrying multiple wives. For this one Rachel. But she died young. And in his mind she was still young. And she had a son Joseph. That was a wise man. A bold man. A young man. The favored son. Better than all the other Rascals that he has that he calls for sons. These who butcher cities and sleep with his own wives. Joseph. But he died at a young age. Slaughtered by animals. Fortunately, he left one little baby. Young boy, maybe one year old, Benjamin. It's all that left. And in Benjamin, he saw Rachel's Eyes, those big, round eyes. He saw Joseph. In Benjamin was the one that represented all that he has lost and, the, and represented beauty and love. All that he lost was in Benjamin. And so in him, in this one person, was his adoration, his love, his grief wrapped up. No, no, we cannot lose Benjamin. And so what he had no way of knowing was that God was doing his own convoy of hope. All right. God was doing his own work of bringing food to the people. God knew that if there was not a deliverer, if there was not food, this nation, this people would be wiped out. Jacob would die and, and Benjamin would die and all of his sons would die. But because he could not let go of Benjamin, because he could not let go of his love, he was going to hold on to him no matter what cost. And he didn't realize that it was going to cost his life, his son's life and everyone else if he did not do this thing. God was doing a convoy of hope and they were fighting him all along the way. There was a work being done and we're going to look at the reaction. There are several reactions that Jacob has to the work of God. The first reaction is one of denial and delay. God is at working and God is asking him to give up something or someone and he is in denial about it and he is in delay about it. He is procrastinating. Notice if we look at Genesis 45 or 6, it, it tells us that this takes place in the second year of the famine. A whole year has probably passed, and they've been eating food and eating food, and poor uh, Simeon, <laughs> he's been in a dungeon. 
And they're finally getting to the last bit. And they're realizing, you know what? It's not raining. We don't have any crops. If we don't have anything soon, we're going to die. Rationing out whatever it may be. But he is in delay. He is in denial. Judah calls him on the carpet. Notice how Jacob says, well, go buy a little bit. Go buy a little bit of food. (laughs) They don't need a little bit of food. They need a lot of food. And so Judah saying, you know what? You you pretend like this isn't going to happen. It's going to happen, Jacob. You cannot pretend like he's not been asked to send Benjamin. And so he says, look, verse 3, the man warned us. You're about to send us to that man without your son Benjamin? That's easy for you to do. You're sitting in the comfortable in your tent, but we're facing the man. And we're not going to go to this man without Benjamin. And so he's in denial. He is delaying. Notice verse 10, what Judah says, look, you know what? If you have not delayed, we would now have returned twice. You've been procrastinating. You've been in denial. And you are going to put our lives at stake with it all. Notice Judah is stepping up to be the leader. Remember, this was the one back, I think it was Genesis 38, 39, where, uh, you know, he, his sons are so immoral, God kills them. And then he sleeps with his daughter-in-law, you know, and has children there with him. This is that one, Judah. Yeah, a repentance is starting to happen in Judah's life. And he's starting to become the leader and stepping up to the plate and putting his life on the line. He says, look, you know what? We're going to go and I want you to put him on me. Reuben had just offered in the previous chapter, look, if something happens to him, then you can kill my two sons. Now, what for, <laughs> that just didn't encourage trust uh, in Jacob. You know, you think that way about your sons? No way. I'm not entrusting my son to you. And so Judah steps up and says, no, I'm not going to give you my sons. Uh, I give you myself. If something happens to him, then put the blame on me. You can never speak to me again if you don't want. But we've got to save our family. And so notice verse 6. He goes from denial and delay when he realizes that the screws are turning on him that he can't get out of this. What's the next thing he do? He starts blaming and lying. Blame and deceit becomes his next tactic. And that when God is at work, that is something that we tend to do because we see that God has an idea of working against us. Like Jacob has when God when we think God is God's just being a killjoy he's trying to take all this stuff away from me and and now I'm in denial and delay and pretending like he doesn't he doesn't ask of me one more thing and now I'm going to start blaming and I'm going to start lying notice verse 6 Israel said why do you treat me so badly I said tell that man that you had another brother now what did he want done I think that he would rather have Judah and the son say you know what we don't have another son just lie about it. And so Judah says, well, what do you want us to say? He asks us directly. We can't lie about this, but we got the idea that he was mad at the brothers because they didn't lie. And he blames them for it. He is sacrificing and he doesn't mind sacrificing his integrity and lying and sacrificing the command of God to being truth speakers so that he can protect his son, Benjamin. Listen, you can discern what you worship by why, by what you sacrifice. What do you sacrifice? If you sacrifice the work and command of God for a person or for an occupation or for a hobby, then you have exalted in priority that occupation, that person, that pleasure over God. 
And you're worshiping that over God. All I got to do is just look at your lifestyle and see what are you sacrificing? What are you giving up in order to have what? Well, for Jacob, he was giving up his integrity to keep his son. Now, notice as we keep on going, Judah sees it as procrastination. Verse 11, he realizes, you know what? All right, that's over with. Blame, deceit, that's not going to get what I want. Screws a turn, I'm forced. I got to give my son. So what's my next tactic? I want to bargain and bribe. Bargain and bribe for God's work. I want to manipulate circumstances so it fits how I think life ought to be. Notice verse 11. Then the father of Israel said to him, well, if it must be so, then do this. And he gets the goods of the land. All right. He says, get get some uh, uh, a little balm. This is a medicinal value, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds. Take double the money. Uh, We're going to try to gift our way toward this man so that he treats us with favor. He said, I did this with Esau. Maybe it'll work again. And I'm just going to uh, be really sweet and try to manipulate all the circumstances around. And so they gather all their stuff together. And then he says in verse 14, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. Now, if he had stopped there, that would have been good. So, you know, God Almighty, the one who can take care of everything, may he bless you. But then he goes on and says this. As for me... If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. In other words, you know what? I've been in depression. I've been, uh, I've been in, in grief for 20 some years. I've been determined to do so. I have not sought consolation and I wanted to grieve. And what's a few more years of grief? God can take this son too. It's up to God. And so he is going to a fatalistic sulking mode, a fatalistic sulking mode. What God will do, what God will do. And he's against me. He's against me. And so that's kind of the view here. And so I just want to bring to your attention something that Jacob didn't know. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this. But it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of a man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This work of God... That he has been in denial about, delaying about, that he has been in blame about, deceitful about, that he has been bargaining and bribing and being fatalistic and sulking about. He has no idea what it really is about. All he knows is what he's losing. And so the boys go out, the men go out bearing these gifts. And so we find in verse 15, so the men took this present, took double the money, and Benjamin. And they went to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And Joseph sees them. Saw Benjamin with them. And says, I tell you what. We're going to have a dinner. We're going to have a lunch. I want you to come to the house. But notice verse 18. When they come to the house. They're afraid. You remember how they operate? How they view God? God is in control for our eternal punishment. So everything that happens. Must be because we're about to get it. And now they can't even enjoy about what, what's about to happen. Because all the while they're thinking, the hammer's going to fall. The hammer's going to fall. And so they were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and said, Now, listen to this. 
It's because of the money. I said, it's coming back. And so they, they bring this to the steward. And the steward says, you know what? It's not about that. Notice verse 23. It says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers put treasure in your sacks for you. For I received your money. Now, if I'm sitting there as a brother, if I'm a Reuben and Simeon, one of these guys, one of the things I'm asking is, how does he know about my God? This isn't Joseph speaking. This is Joseph's servant. How does he know about my God? And secondly, how does he know about my father and who my father serve? And he's the one providing peace. There is a, a kind of a, a foreshadowing of what's happening. But I think it's interesting that Joseph's servant is speaking this. He's been influenced by Joseph. And so he's saying this is a work of God. God is giving you grace. And you don't even realize it because of your fear. And now they get everything prepared. And you notice what they're saying to each other as they're thinking about this. I said, oh, no. We're being brought to this house so that we can be assaulted by this man. So that we can be beat, put into slaves, and he's going to steal our donkeys. <laughs> i got to laugh a little bit. I mean, what does Joseph want with their donkeys? You know, he's prime minister of Egypt. He doesn't need any donkeys. He doesn't need any servants and slaves. But they are thinking irrationally out of fear. They, they can't see what's there. They all think he's going to steal our donkeys. He's going to steal us. And they can't see that they're sitting in the very house of grace. They're shattered by their father. They're shattered by their past and the sins of their life. And they view God as God out to get him. Now, notice instead, they brought them into Joseph's house. They gave him water. They washed their feet and they gave food to the donkeys. Now notice verse 25. They prepare the present for Joseph coming at noon. Now, you notice that's the first thing they do. Verse 26. Joseph came home. They brought him to the house to him the present that they had had with them. Uh, and bowed down to him to the ground. And so you can imagine maybe it's Judah saying, all right, guys, who, who's got the bomb? All right, myrrh, honey. Who's got the pistachio nuts? Almonds. Let's line them all up there and let's make them look good. Maybe Joseph, or this man, will look differently at us. So here comes the man. But you notice, he doesn't say, ooh, pistachio nuts. You, know, you don't have any kind of acknowledgement of the gifts. You know, he's like, what's the first thing he does? He asks about their welfare. Is your father, is he alive? Is he well? Is this, is this the son, the younger son? Listen, we do the same thing with God. We want life to go a certain way. We have in our mind. This is a good life. This is what it means to have a wonderful life. It's an American dream or whatever it may be. And so we're going to find whatever we can to make it happen. And think, oh, God's in control? Well, let me treat God nicely. Let me make sure that I do him well. And maybe God will look down on me with favor and grant me all that I want. And maybe he won't take from me that which I dearly love. And so we say, well, maybe I'll join the choir. That'll be a good commitment. Maybe I'll, oh, I'll teach Sunday school. Oh, no, I'll work in the nursery. That's, that's the work that no one knows about. I'll do in the nursery. It's even more noble. 
I'll give to the poor. I'll, I'll be charitable in my life. I will live a good life. I will not do bad things. Because I want to be a blessing upon this earth. And maybe when God sees me, then he will make life go the way I want it to go. It's like we offer to him our pistachio nuts and almonds. As if God needs that. Joseph doesn't change his mind. Joseph doesn't say, well, you know what, guys? I was really thinking about sending you off to slavery. And I was really wanting those donkeys. But since you gave me pistachio nuts... Well, you know, now things are different. What would that have said about Joseph if the gum and the honey and the nuts changed his mind? <laughs> well, it said, well, he really likes nuts and gum and honey and, you know, you can change his mind. And the character of Joseph would have dropped a few notches, would it not? But listen. What we get in the story is that grace was in Joseph's heart before he ever saw the gifts. Grace was in Joseph's heart before the men confessed. Grace was in Joseph's heart before they ever repented. And he didn't care so much about their gifts. He cared about them. He wanted them. Listen. You know how you come to God? You don't come to God and say, God, will you serve my vision? Will you serve my vision of how life ought to be? Here is all the gifts. Will you manipulate things so that things work toward my vision? And God says, okay, that sounds like a good partnership. You do things nice for me, I'll do things nice for you. And so God is a Pez dispenser. No. God says this. I tell you what, you make me your vision. Not your idea for life, not your dream for life, but you make me your vision. And I'm not so interested in what you are or what, you are, or what you've done, but I'm interested in you. Give me you. It'd be a lot easier if we could just give him pistachio nuts. It'd be a lot easier if we could just join the choir. If we could just come to church, give him our one day of week. Give him our 10% and let it go at that. Uh uh. God wants you. He wants all of who you are. So, what happens? Well, he sees, he sees a young man that wasn't there before. He's probably around 23, maybe 24. And so he lifts up his eyes. And sees his mother's son. This is the only true brother. Same mother, same father. Last, I mean, in his mind, when he thinks Benjamin, he thinks a baby, a one-year-old. As the older brother, looking out for him, he's wondering what has happened. And now this young man is standing before him. And he has to ask this question. Is this the youngest brother of whom you spoke? And notice... I think that at this moment, it just spills out of him. He's starting to lose control. He says, Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. He gives out a blessing. Imagine, imagine the other brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Judah. They're thinking, well, that's kind of odd. This is a weird time, a weird place to give a blessing. But notice what happens. After doing this, he has to hurry out. 
For his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Let me just bring out something. If Joseph was doing that for Benjamin, what do you think Jesus does to you? Joseph is just a man. But what about Jesus? Jesus is the one who has come before us. He is the one who's paid the price, who is now at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who knows our greatest need. And God the Father sees us not starving physically, but starving spiritually. That if something doesn't happen, if we don't have mercy, if we don't have forgiveness, we will die eternally. And we are in great need. And before we ever come with forgiveness or confession, repentance, grace is in the heart of Jesus. And Jesus said, I've paid the price. I've taken the lashes. I bore the nail holes. I know what it is to be forsaken by God the Father. I did this for you. And as he looks, would he not see you and be moved with compassion? So much so that he weeps. The Bible tells us that as Jesus was going from crowds to crowds and looking at the crowds of people and saw them as sheep without a shepherd, that he was moved with compassion, a physical effect on his body and his person, his his spirit. What does Jesus do for you? If Joseph did this, how much more Jesus? And he's entered his chamber and wept there, washed his face, came out, controlling himself, said, serve the food. And they ate together, then they really didn't eat together. It's kind of the Egyptian way. They were racist attitudes toward Hebrews. They saw them as unclean, defiled, did not sit at the same table. So they had three tables, one or three groups, one for the Hebrews, one for the Egyptian servants, and here's Joseph. But you get the idea that on Joseph's table, though he's the only one, that's where all the food's at. All right? That's where all the food is at. You notice... How it says that when they're doling it out toward uh, each one, that it's coming from Joseph's table. Now, there's a couple of things that are of note here. One, they're grouped according from oldest to youngest. Now, there are 11 individuals here. You understand, there are no less than 39,917,000 different orders among 11 individuals. So the fact that he got it from oldest to youngest, that that exceeds the bounds of probability. This man knows something about them or he has supernatural knowledge. And that's what the brothers are figuring out. The second thing that is of interest is that, verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. (laughs) I think Joseph is just saying, you know what, this is the first time I'm able to show some love to my own brother. And he just sends it out. He sends it out. Why does the Bible mention about him weeping? Because in the next chapter, we're going to see that Joseph is doing some testing of the brothers. And we may be tempted to think, oh, he's just acting out in vengeance. But it lets us know that what he's about to do is out of love and compassion for the individuals. And they drank and were merry with him. Seems to imitate that they got a little relaxed, if you know what I mean. 
according to that word. And they enjoyed each other's company for a little while. Listen, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. There's a a story that goes of a a father walking out in the streets after a, a heavy shower with his young little girl. As they're walking along the freshly washed streets, they're seeing the rain, uh, water coming down the sides, the gutters of the streets. They caught, something caught their eye, a little shiny object, and they run to it, and, and it's a little necklace, like those little necklaces you find in, in gub, bubble gum machines, you know, and, uh, of course the daughter loved it, wanted to wear it, and so they did, and that was her, her treasured jewelry, you know, her, it's like her necklace, she finally has a necklace, so she wore it for a long time. The father, Decided one day that, you know, it's about time that my daughter really has a nice necklace. I think she's able. I want to give her a nice necklace. So he went out to the store and, and paid for a really nice necklace. And, and came to his daughter and said, you know, I'm going to use this to teach something. And said, daughter, you really love your necklace, don't you? She said, oh, daddy, I love my necklace. This is a great, great find. So, daddy, well, daughter, I want you to give me your necklace. Oh, Daddy, I really like my necklace. I I don't want to lose my necklace. So, but daughter, if you love me, if you trust me, give me your necklace. So, since he put it in those terms, she kind of had her face turned down at this. She slowly took off her necklace and looked at it longingly one last time and looked at her daddy and gave it to the daddy. And as... The daddy took it with one hand. He brought the other hand and showed her the new necklace. She never had a passing thought anymore about the old because she saw what was new. I just want to share with you that God may ask you much. No, that's too, too little. God will ask you for all. God is such that when you see what God has done, that you will never miss what you've gave up. Because you've seen now at the end what God has given. And you think, well, I don't see how that's possible. Well, God's trying to teach you something new about him. And I want to just quote to you again the words of Isaiah. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to the, to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah 30:18. So what I say to you is wait on him. And in view of all of God's mercies I beg you, give your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And don't be conformed. Don't be changed and, and molded into what this world values and what it says. But instead, let God do a work in changing your mind from the inside out, giving you a whole new way of thinking so that you can do what God wants you to do.